you know, it is a little bit scary to see people from outside of the industry, people who have not been necessarily advocating for the, for, um, the overturning of psychedelic prohibition for decades, like the Rick Doblins and Bill Richards and Jim Fadimans of the world coming in with large amounts of capital and investing in these for-profit entities because we don't know what their intentions are. And alongside like all these psychedelic conferences that have been around for a long time, like Horizons and Breaking Convention and whatever, who are making an effort to talk about sacred reciprocity and to talk about the indigenous use of plant medicines, we're also seeing a whole new crop of psychedelic conferences pop up specifically for prospective investors. And I haven't really seen any talk of like indigenous use of plant medicines there um, at all so far, um, which to me just, makes no sense. Hey loved ones, welcome to Naked Conversations, a space for you and I to meditate, strategize, and dream of the tools needed to transform into radical selves. I'm your host, Martisa Williams, free being, radical wayshore, and liberation doula. My purpose is to support the collective on our journey to deeper joy, sweeter justice, and fulfilling presence. So are you ready to step into your most liberated life yet? Let's get to it. Hi friends. Over the past year, it has become abundantly clear that our world and our communities are in desperate need of some healing. Between the state-sanctioned murders of dozens of black and brown folks, to climate catastrophe, to the war on folks with uteruses, and all manner of international nightmares, the way we've always done things is killing us. And in the wake of all of this, many of us have felt hopeless and confused. We sign petitions and donate money and post on Instagram, but that honestly just doesn't feel like enough. For years, I have held the belief that transformed people transform the world. The work of freedom and liberation must be done both from the political side and from the shifting of the individual's heart. And for many years, I've been playing with methods of doing this for myself, working on how to unlearn the oppression that I grew up in, how to stop perpetuating that oppression in the world around me. And out of that inquiry and experimentation came the toolbox. So the toolbox is an annual membership packed with the tools I've used to make anti-oppression a daily practice. With the 12 month membership, you get unlimited access to all of my embodied liberation workshops, presence practices, group coaching, and more. Pre-sale of the membership starts now. And when you sign up between now and December 31st, you'll receive a free 30-minute one-on-one coaching session with me, regular group coaching calls exclusively for founding members, a free month when you refer a friend, and access to offer direct feedback on the membership as it grows. In an effort to create accessibility, I'm providing this membership with sliding scale pricing. So you can choose a price that is accessible for you for as low as $39 a month. This 
is a huge, huge part of my life's work, and I am so excited to share with you. For more information or to become a founding member, click the link in the show notes or go to letsgetnaked.com slash the toolbox. Hello, hello, my friends. Welcome back to Naked Conversations. Another week. So we actually only have two more episodes, this one and next week's episode, in season two. So it has gone really, really quickly, but I'm really grateful for your ears and your comments and your sharing. Um, It means a lot, and I notice it all, so thank you so much. Um, and, and I just want to remind you that the toolbox is still on presale and will be on presale, uh, until December, end of December. So if it is something that you're interested in, please, please, please check it out. All the information is in the show notes. Um, and feel free to shoot me an email if there are like questions you have or wanting to know if this is a, Um, right step for you in your liberation journey. I'm happy to chat live about that um, at any time. So let's get into today's episode, shall we? So today we talk with Shelby Hartman, who is the co-founder and CEO of Double Blind Mag, a media company and education platform at the forefront of the rapidly growing psychedelic movement. She is a reporter and editor specializing in psychedelics, cannabis, drug policy, and mental health. Her work has been appeared in Vice, Quartz, The Huffington Post, and Rolling Stones, among others. In the episode, we talk about um, Shelby's kind of, um, she studied philosophy in college, and, and we so we start talking about existentialism, we talk about mystical experiences, um, we talk about how people are often either drawn to or repelled from specific medicines, um, and we talk about the spirit of the medicine, um, and how each psychedelic medicine tends to has its own exper- has its own spirit. Um, we talk about indigenous wisdom and clinical trials. We talk about capitalism and its effect in the industry. Um, we talk about the origins of Double Blind Magazine and how important set and setting is, and and um, how to kind of go about taking medicines um, in the way that's like safe and effective and all these things um and then shelby's most we talk about shelby's most impactful plant medicine experience and also integration shelby and i had this conversation prior to my own experience with ayahuasca so it sounds like um i haven't when at the time of this recording i had not had much experience with the medicines that we're talking about um but since then have and um yeah, it's just a fun conversation about psychedelics in the industry and where it's going and some critiques of it. And so I hope you enjoy. I will see you on the other side.
Hi, hi. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Awesome, awesome. Well, the first question I ask all my guests is what made you you? Um, well, to be honest, um, a lot of pain, I would say, is, is, is a good starting point. Um, I think I struggled a lot of my life. I was bullied a lot as a kid and um, was always just like a very wild, curious little kid. Um, who felt like a misfit. Um, and I think that uh, for a lot of my life, I kind of felt like an outsider. And, you know, when I was a freshman in college, I discovered existentialism. Someone gave me a copy of Thus Spoke Zarathustra by Nietzsche. And I had my first psychedelic experience with some friends. I did some shrooms. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Um, and a lot of things started to make sense to me. Um, and I think that I was sort of catapulted on this lifelong journey of self-growth and discovery and inquiry. Yeah, for sure. I, I love that you bring up existentialism. Um, I feel like I must have not read for class that day because I cannot put a pin in what exactly it is. Can you sum it up really quick? Or like, I'm sure it's not super quick, right? Yeah, I mean, existentialism is a period, I ended up majoring in philosophy actually, went down the rabbit hole. It's a period of um, philosophy that came about in the um, 18th, 19th century. And it essentially says that there is no objective truth and that all meaning is relative. Um, and in particular, I was really fascinated with Nietzsche because he essentially talks about how we all have to create our own values and our own value systems, right? So um, it really got me thinking about like, what are all the quote unquote truths that I've inherited from my society from my culture and how have they um, held me down essentially? And what does it mean for me to really step into my own as a free thinker and to fully exercise my right to cognitive liberty? I love that. Ooh, cognitive liberty. So you were in tandem learning existentialism while also dipping your toe into uh, psychedelics. So tell me a little bit about like that journey and like how, how that, how those two things like merge together for you. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, it got harder before it got easier. And I think that a lot of times that is the case when you start embarking on a journey of self-discovery, um, because I started to realize both through the use of psychedelics and through um, reading existentialism that I didn't know what was true <laughs> and I was very confused 
Um, you know, I just felt like, God, I mean, if I can't believe what I have been taught, if I can't believe what the values that I've inherited or what society tells me is right or normal or okay or good, then, you know, who can tell me? And it's just this process of building yourself from the ground up, you know, recreating your own value system and how you relate to the world. So I would say that psychedelics and, and philosophy and just are both tools, mechanisms for um, breaking boundaries, breaking barriers, and figuring out what feels good to you. Absolutely. Yeah. The psychedelics piece is something I have been really interested in for a few years now. And it's not something I've dabbled in a whole lot. Um, cannabis is like one of my favorite, absolute favorite plants in the world. And I have uh, microdosed shrooms a few times and had really lovely experiences and really subtle experiences, nothing super intense, but I've had really beautiful, oh, this is the connection of all of us. Like I've had a lot of that. Um, and for me, I had this really, in the time that I had, I had tripped and it was a little bit more than a microdose. And I had that experience of, oh, we're all one, like very viscerally. And I've been taught like that. I came from a family who was into new age studies, was into A Course in Miracles. And I kind of grew up in a religious standpoint from that. But I think that was the first time that I felt it like in every cell of my body, how connected mm. we are. Which I think is funny that you say that like breaking down the barriers piece because I very, very much experienced that through working with mushrooms specifically. Have you found yourself like with different um, psychedelics and different experiences, they have kind of different lessons to teach or every single time it's kind of a new experience, a new, a new lesson? Hmm. That's interesting. First, I'll just respond a little bit to your experience of unity because, I mean, my co-founder Madison is sitting over there. We're co-working today together, but she talks a lot and writes a lot and thinks a lot on what is called, quote unquote, the mystical experience. And this is um, a term that was originally coined by a religious scholar, but is now also used by scientists who are investigating the therapeutic potential of psychedelics in clinical trials. And the mystical experience is defined by a number of criteria, one of them being unity and a feeling that you are connected to something greater than yourself. And so scientists have actually um, drawn a connection between the extent to which someone has a mystical experience, which can be occasioned by a psychedelic, but also can be occasioned by fasting or prayer or deep meditation or a number of other mechanisms, and the amount of healing that is received on the psychedelic itself. So mm. if someone, say, goes into a clinical trial and they want to quit smoking or they want to stop using cocaine or they have an eating disorder, whatever's going on with them, and they experience a very, very profound mystical experience, which again is defined by qualities like unity, they are more likely to receive the healing they were looking for, to come out of the clinical trial and no longer have nicotine addictions, no longer have cocaine cravings, no longer have issues of body dysmorphia. So I think that that's just an interesting um, aside. But 
In terms of do different psychedelic plants and cacti have uh, spirits or um, sort of like qualities that we can identify, I would say absolutely 100%. Um, you know, they're one of the biggest questions that people who are interested in using psychedelics for the first time ask Madison and I is what psychedelic should I do? There's dozens of psychedelics, obviously the most common ones being like LSD, shrooms, ayahuasca, DMT, ketamine, probably forgetting a couple. Um, but there's so many more that have been used for thousands of years by indigenous communities all over the world, across Africa and in the Amazon and all over South America. And of course, here in North America as well with the indigenous populations here. Um, and so when you're trying to decide what psychedelic do I want to do, I mean, yeah, you can look at the limited research that's been done that has found that like, you know, LSD and shrooms are good for end of life anxiety and ketamine might help you if you have depression and whatever. But really, it's just a deeply personal choice. And it's hard to explain, but a lot of it is just a calling. I mean, mm. after you read about the medicine, you talk to people who, you know, have had experiences on the medicine. I think that we all kind of intuitively know yeah, this is something I want to do. And this is something that I'm ready for. Or you know what? I don't think so. Thanks, but no thanks. Um, certainly that's the case with ayahuasca. And so I have experienced, um, you know, every single trip is going to be different depending on who you're with, where you are, where you're at in your life. Um, but at the same time, I do think that there are commonalities um, between the trips that you have on a particular medicine, if that makes sense. So ayahuasca to me is always felt, and a lot of people say this, as a very feminine spirit. That's mm -hmm. why so many people refer to ayahuasca as mother ayahuasca or grandmother ayahuasca, because it really does feel like she's this goddess who's kind of like speaking to you and whispering in your ear. Whereas combo, which is... Um, a medicine that comes from the excretion of a frog in the Amazon to me is felt as sort of like a very aggressive masculine tribal kind of like almost like violent medicine. Um, and that makes sense because historically it has been used by warriors in the Amazon before they went out to war or to hunt. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, I have learned a little bit about the language of like the spirits of the different plants and the different medicines. Um, and it's one of the reasons why on a personal level, I have been called, I feel, I feel called to work with ayahuasca. Well, for many reasons, but um, connecting to the nurturer, the feminine, the, the um, kind of just deeply revealing in a soft way. Um, even though a lot of people have said, like, it's not soft. The experience isn't necessarily soft, but <laughs> the um, maybe the spirit or the energy behind it is. Um, I love that um, more people are using language that I know has been used from in the indigenous folks that have cultivated this. Like, how much have you kind of studied the indigenous piece pieces of these medicines because I think unfortunately in the West we can forget like the origin stories mm -hmm. um and so 
is that something that you like think about and, and intentionally bring into practice and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so the first thing I'll say is that, um, you know, and, and Madison and I often say this, that we're journalists. Mm-hmm. So at least professionally speaking, we're not the experts, we're the people who talk to the experts. So, you know, like I would never say that, you know, I would never call myself like an expert of the indigenous use of plant medicines. Um, it is extremely, extremely important to us at Double Blind that we are always upholding reverence for indigenous wisdom and that we're not creating a hierarchy in which we say like, okay, clinical trials with FDA approval are up here and everything else is down here. I mean, it's really just, like I said before, it's all about cognitive liberty and reducing harm. So however people want to use medicines and want to, you know, treat, you know, it's, it's just, it's up to them um, completely. And I do think that um, 100% that so much is lost when we try and bring psychedelic plants and fungi into sort of like the laboratory or the clinical trial environment um, because, I mean, essentially the way that clinical trials are designed is that you have to eliminate as many variables as possible, right? So if you think back to like the scientific method, which we learn, we all learn about when we're in elementary school or middle school or whatever, and it's like you can only have one variable at a time because if you have multiple variables, you don't know what is impacting what. If you think about how psychedelic plants and fungi are taken in an indigenous context, for example, ayahuasca, um, you know, you have the curandero or curandero who is there, who is blowing. I mean, it depends on the, the setting. There's more than, you know, a hundred different ways that people take ayahuasca traditionally, but you have, you know, the mapacho, which is the tobacco that they're blowing into the room. You have the ikaro, which are the traditional songs that they're singing to you. Um, I mean, there's just so much ritual and intention that goes into like creating the container. It happens in the evening. Um, like I, I went down to the Amazon in February and participated in some Shipibo ceremonies where they also use throughout the whole ceremony, Rawi Ninti, which is a combination of different kinds of um, perfumes, essentially. And it's supposed to clear your energy. And the Shipibo elders, it was all women, um, blow the, um, the cologne on you during the ceremony and Um, tell you to rub it on yourself to kind of clear the energy and move through certain things. So there's just so, so much intricacy that obviously goes into these ceremonies that we do not take into account in sort of like the Western pharmaceutical context. Um, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be researching psychedelics and trying to get them on the market as prescription medications because they have extraordinary healing potential. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who will never want to do a psychedelic in sort of like a more traditional indigenous context. At the end of the day, like at Double Blind, we're all about just reduction of suffering. So it's like whatever we can do to reduce suffering for the most amount of people on this planet, like that's what it's about. Um, but yeah, I mean, I could never possibly, you know, we take little steps. Um, we, you know, in every single magazine, we always make it a point of highlighting indigenous voices of working with, um, indigenous artists, indigenous photographers, um, 
indigenous poets and covering indigenous rights. We give a percentage of all of our proceeds at Double Blind to a number of indigenous-led, um, BIPOC-led uh, plant medicine organizations and nonprofits. And so this is something that is hugely important to us, but it's very, very complicated and I would never call myself an expert in it. I think it takes a lifetime. And even still, if you're an anthropologist, like Bia Labache, for example, is, is a dear friend of ours at Double Blind. And she, I would say, is one of the foremost leaders on ayahuasca she's edited more than like a dozen books on ayahuasca and shamanism and has spent tons of time in the amazon been drinking ayahuasca for 30 plus years and like you know even someone like that i mean there's only so much if you're not a, a if you're not an indigenous person who has the lived experience of an indigenous person like there's only so much that you can know absolutely yeah absolutely do you find that like in the psychedelic culture kind of at large, do you find that there is a growing desire for that reverence or even maybe it's always been there? Yeah, I think that there's um, some really important movement happening in the psychedelic community right now to, um, to talk about the indigenous use of plant medicines and also um, just to diversify the psychedelic movement in general. So, um, I mean, I'm trying to think of some. So uh, sacred reciprocity, as I mentioned before, is uh, this idea that if you are a Westerner or someone who's Westerner, quote unquote, someone who doesn't have a ancestral tie to indigenous plant medicine, that it's sort of your obligation to be giving back to indigenous communities in some way. Um, and this is a, a concept that I definitely see coming up a lot more and more at psychedelic conferences and things. There's been a lot of conversation about how can we, um, you know, bring indigenous people to conferences, make sure that we are having panels that are talking about like indigenous rights and um, indigenous use of plant medicine. But um, at the same time that we see all of that happening, which is amazing, um, there also are a lot of, um, you know, new, new stakeholders coming into the psychedelic industry who are looking to invest millions of dollars into the psychedelic drug development side of things. And, um, you know, we have had more than $100 million in investment pour into psychedelic drug development in just the recent months, the last like three, four months. Um, and a lot of these people are primarily like, you know, white, wealthy men who may or may not have a personal relationship with plant medicines. Um, I think that, you know, again, like, We've, I mean, we've said this at Double Blind before, there are a lot of amazing white educated men who have done incredible things for the psychedelic movement. So nothing against, you know, that, you know, nothing against white educated men. It's just <laughs> to say that, um, you know, it is a little bit scary to see people from outside of the industry, people who have not been necessarily advocating for the, for, um, the overturning of psychedelic prohibition for decades, like the Rick Doblins and Bill Richards and Jim Fadimans of the world coming in with large amounts of capital and investing in these for-profit entities because we don't know what their intentions are. And alongside like 
all these psychedelic conferences that have been around for a long time, like Horizons and Breaking Convention and whatever, who are making an effort to talk about sacred reciprocity and to talk about the indigenous use of plant medicines. We're also seeing a whole new crop of psychedelic conferences pop up specifically for prospective investors. And I haven't really seen any talk of like indigenous use of plant medicines there um, at all so far. Um, which to me just makes no sense. Right, yeah. That's why, I mean, it's like interesting because the, I mean, the same thing is happening, has happened with the cannabis industry of just this wild overtaking, essentially, with little like uh, given back to the people that have, you know, uh, have been affected by the drug war and black and brown people that are in jail and things like that and and giving back to those communities so it's it's not surprising unfortunately it's definitely not surprising that that's the the trend but i i sometimes wonder like what what would it take for us to do it right you know like is it you know legalization at any cost or you know or is it like, no, let's take the time to make sure the legislation is really, um, or just not even just the legislation, but everything, like the whole culture around it and how we are um, using it in a larger context, is it more with reverence, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know how that, I don't even know that's such a, it's such a mess. I feel like in, in a lot of ways that, you know, everyone's just looking for a way to turn a buck but unfortunately a lot of things get steamrolled get steamrolled in the process of that i mean like i said there are a lot of people who are trying and who are doing it in um in the right way as well um maps for example which is the main nonprofit, which has been behind a lot of the psychedelic research they were founded in 1986 and they're likely going to be getting MDMA, um, sometimes referred to as ecstasy, on the market for post-traumatic stress disorder in the next like five years. And um, they're doing, they're making huge efforts to do trainings for therapists of color and um, to enroll people of color in their clinical trials. Um, they saw that, you know, there was a study that came out from um, Monica Williams, who's sort of been at the forefront of, um, of sort of rewriting clinical trial protocols so that people of color feel um, like safer enrolling and also in doing outreach to communities of color to try and get some therapists trained in psychedelic integration therapy. She did a study which found that more than like 80% of clinical trial subjects going back to 1993 were white. And this was a pretty big wake up call, I think, for the psychedelic community. And so since then, like MAPS has been, you know, putting a lot of effort, I think, into changing that. Um, they also have a really interesting model where they are a nonprofit, but they also have developed sort of this like um, other other entity that is called a benefit corporation, which is a for-profit entity, but it um, 
is solely for the purposes of making a profit on the MDMA so that they can put those profits back into their psychedelic research. So it's just like a really, it's a really innovative model. And I think that there are a lot of people in the psychedelic community, even people who have serious capital, who are interested in drug development, who care about plant medicines and see psychedelics as an opportunity to sort of reimagine what conscious capitalism looks like. Now we can have a conversation about whether conscious capitalism is even possible. Mm. And like, that's a whole rabbit hole that we could go down. But I do think that there are a lot of people who care and who are trying. And I think it's an exciting opportunity for us to reimagine what a conscious economy looks like within the psychedelic space in the hopes that it can be replicated in other industries. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great call out, a great call out. It's funny that you say, you know, we can debate the conscious capitalism thing. I don't, hmm, we're not going to get down that rabbit hole, but I love, I love that it's a, it's a topic of discussion, um, especially when it comes to psychedelic medicine. Um, so let's talk about double blind a little bit and like how it came to be and and what your dream was and how you're fulfilling those dreams and things like that. Hi beautiful ones. I'm pausing this episode quickly to let you know about a couple of ways that you can work with me. I am a liberation doula, which means that my work surrounds around helping folks to birth their most joyful, liberated lives. What does it look like to be free? What does it look like to practice freedom daily? And what does it look like to orient yourself towards personal and collective liberation? So in order to support people in their liberation, I have two ways to work with me one-on-one. The first is through liberation coaching, which is one-off coaching. You can go onto my website and sign up for a uh, session. It's one hour where we can talk about anything that is pressing in your life or that is uh, coming up for you, questions that you want to answer or something that you want to workshop. It's a great opportunity for just kind of like anything that's coming up and you would like to talk with me about it or workshop it with me, it's a great way to do that. The other option is through the Journey Intensive Coaching Program, which is a three to 12 month coaching intensive where I walk you through my framework for liberation. This framework is something I've been working on for many, many years, and I say often is an extension of the work that my ancestors have worked on for centuries. I have boiled it down to a three-part framework, which is alignment, embodiment, and connection. First, we will walk through what is your dream for your freedom? What is the dream for your life? If you could have a full imagination about what is possible, um, let's play and be in that space. And then we evaluate your values, see what is working for you, what isn't working for you. And then are you living in alignment to those values? And then we work through what it looks like to be an embodiment of those values, an embodiment of your intuition. And then we move into the connection piece, which is all about anti-oppressions and the ways that we live out the systems of oppressions daily through the ways that we talk, the ways that we walk, the choices that we make, and the things that we support. And how do we undo that? How do we remove those things from our embodied program? 
Um, and that's what we work through with the coaching intensive, which is a really beautiful opportunity to dig deep into your liberation and to create frameworks and systems for that. So if you're interested in working with me one-on-one, you can do that through the link in the show notes or go to letsgetnaked.com slash coaching. Now let's get back to the episode. Um, well, double blind came to me on my meditation pillow. Love it. <laughs> I, was med- I was meditating at my apartment in New Orleans and I just had the idea and I called it my now co-founder and I was like, I have this idea. Let's start a psychedelic magazine. And she was like, okay. Um, so we didn't have anything. Like we did not have money. We did not have, we had nothing, you know, <laughs> but we, except for an idea. And we called other people who we'd worked with in the past because we're both journalists by trade. We met at Columbia Journalism School. We had been writing for Vice, Rolling Stone, Playboy, a lot of the same outlets on psychedelics and cannabis. And, um, and yeah, like we just reached out to all of our friends who we trust and who are awesome writers, designers, artists, photographers. And we're like, we don't have any money, but we have this cool idea. And everyone was like, yeah, I'm in. So we put together the first magazine. Um, and then shortly thereafter, um, you know, I was contacted by a couple of different cool conferences in the space, the World Ayahuasca Conference, which takes place every other year. It's amazing. You should definitely go if you can. Yeah, for sure. As well as Queering Psychedelics, which was the first conference ever highlighting queer voices in the psychedelic movement. And um, so both of these conferences had contacted me and said like, oh, do you want to come? Do you want to cover as a journalist, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, actually, I have this new magazine and uh, maybe you can uh, give us a free booth if I write about it about your conference they're like sure so we got free booths at the conferences we went with like our first batch of magazines just like hustling handing them out to as many people as we could and it really took off you know like we had 150,000 people come to our website in the first month and we had absolutely no like I mean, obviously we didn't have money, so we weren't like advertising or sponsoring or partnering or doing anything. We were just writing because that's what we know how to do. And um, so, you know, we're still a very small independent operation. We're still working really hard every day to get to a point where we can just pay our own bills doing this. It's largely a passion project, but, um, but we do see a future where, you know, we're going to be able to pay our own bills and continue to grow this doing really important work that matters. And so that is super, super exciting. And we feel really humbled um, to just be a part of this, a part of this important movement. Yeah, that's so cool. That's so cool. Did you have any like legal, um, like pushback around it? I grew up in the Midwest. Uh, didn't know shit about shit was just like you know very like anti and so it's been an unlearning for me to like not have shame around my desire to use plant medicines and a belief in them and all that kind of stuff so I guess the question is since it's not federally legal was there any legal stuff you had to deal with in creating this magazine creating the, the type of content that you do and you even have courses and things yeah no 
I mean, um, luckily we're journalists, so we're protected by the First Amendment. You know, I've been writing about psychedelics, like I mentioned, Madison and I have been writing about psychedelics for a bunch of outlets and cannabis for a long time, even before it was legal. So it it was never, you know, a concern. I mean, we're yeah. If we were can... if we were selling drugs or something, then yeah, but we're not selling drugs, we're just talking about them. <laughs> I love that. That's so I mean, I think visually the magazine is gorgeous your instagram is beautiful um i think the content like the courses and things that you create is like super interesting um what i thought was like and i love that you talk about like reducing harm like that is such a a key piece because i think when you know people outside of the psychedelic community and people that are more free thinkers and just interested in this stuff the first mm-hmm. thing they're thinking about is the harm piece, is the legality piece and then the harm piece. Um, and I, I have found so much of your content so reassuring. And like even there was a, an article that you had posted, I think on your blog about um, the drug testing kit. And I was like, what? That's even a thing? Like these should be at, at CVS. Like, you know, like these should be like, readily available for people to be able to again reduce harm so where did the harm reduction piece because I know there's a lot of like trainings and things like that was that something that you went through or was it just like this is what we need to do I mean harm reduction is kind of the name of the game in the psychedelic community right now and in the drug policy reform community in general I think I think um You know, I mean, there are some psychedelic researchers and therapists and things who might say, you know, you should only trip in this very particular kind of context with therapists and preparation and navigation and integration and all that stuff. But, you know, um, we also have sex ed in school. And that's because, like, people realize the kids are going to have sex whether or not we (laughs) give them condoms. So we might as well give them condoms, you know? Um, So I just think, you know, and we're very much about being pragmatic. I mean, at Double Blind, one of the things that Madison and I really thought was missing from the psychedelic community and kind of the void we were hoping to fill in some ways is that you have all this incredible psychedelic research that's happening and these scientists and these conferences and things. But, you know, a lot of people, there's millions of people who use psychedelics who don't know about a psychedelic conference or even if they did, don't want to spend, you know, $150 to go hear like so-and-so neuroscientists from so-and-so university talk about their MRIs of someone on psilocybin. And then on the other hand, you have, you know, these incredible, and I don't want to diminish them, but these incredible just, um, what do, treasure trove, digital treasure troves of information on how to use psychedelics on sites like Shroomery and all the subreddits and Arrowit is absolutely amazing. But as content creators, as people who really know how it is, what it's like to create content that is entertaining and accessible and um, looks trustworthy, we felt like a lot of these sites were not very... um, you know, they're not very easy to navigate for someone who is just getting into the psychedelic space or even if you know a whole lot about psychedelics. 
And so for us, it was like, let's actually talk about what people are already doing and what people want to be doing. And let's just give them the information that they need to do it as safely as they can. And let's just be honest with folks about, you know, this is what we know, this is what we don't know, and this is how you can do your best. Um, the other day I was talking to, um, I interviewed this incredible, she goes, she, she identifies as an entheogenic midwife. And I know, and you should definitely just look her up and bring her on the show. Her name's Omolewa, she's based in Jamaica. And, um, you know, one of the things that she does is she holds space for people when they're having psilocybin experiences. Um, and she also does, um, massage body work with psilocybin and all other kinds of things. And, and, um, I really was very, very moved by my conversation with her. And I've been thinking about it nonstop because someone, um, was asking her about, um, you know, what is, how she holds space for people when they're on psilocybin. And she said to them, she goes, you know, I can, you know, I can massage you. I can light my candles. I can set up the ceremony space. I can rub all kinds of love up on you. But if you are not ready to go inward, it doesn't matter if I am there or not. And so she said, so I, rec- you know, I, I understand why in the psychedelic community, people are talking about preparation and navigation and integration and all these things. And it, all that stuff really matters. And it genuinely can impact your outcome, how much healing you receive from the experience, 100%. Um, additionally, you know, and I probably even shouldn't be saying this on the record, but I'm just going to start leaning into my truth a little more and just say that I think part of the reason why all of that exists is because people are really afraid of us kind of going back to the Timothy Leary days where things get out of control and we see this backlash and then all the incredible progress that's been made through research at Hopkins and stuff is going to be for nothing. And so, you know, everyone's like, we have to, you have to do psychedelics with this and that and this and that and this and that. Omolewa says, you know what? I really just recommend that you take some mushrooms by yourself. She's like, just eat some mushrooms and go sit with yourself. She's like, if you're afraid, good. Walk into that fear. Yes, yes. And, and I, yeah, and, and I just felt like, you know, more people need to, need to be, I mean, I just, I'm scared to say something like that because I don't want someone, I mean, there genuinely are risks if you have a family history of psychosis, if you're on SSRIs, if you like, I need to put all that out there as well as a disclaimer, like be intentional. And I probably don't, wouldn't recommend tripping by yourself for the first time. You need to become familiar with like what it's like to be in an entheogenic state of mind and sort of like, you need to have like a ritual set up and a space set up and everything. But I think- Personally, I found that there is a lot of value in just like literally just going into nature or like when your roommates aren't home, just lighting some candles and tripping. Yeah. I mean, it's meditative, you know? And I think I think that's what's interesting about it. And I love that you brought up like the fear piece is that I feel like people are... <sighs> I'm going to boldly say this. People are afraid of themselves and people are afraid of what psychedelics will bring up, 
which in reality, it's just themselves. Like, it's just yourself that you're being confronted with and your history and all of this. And so I think it's interesting that she says, like, just go and, like, be with yourself because that's that's the medicine right there, you know? Like, we can do all of this extra stuff, but at the end of the day, if you're not able to face yourself, what's the point? Exactly. Yeah, that's so great. Tell me her name again. Omolewa. I'll send you her information. Yeah, please do. I'd love to have her, love, love to have her on the show. So tell me, what's the fa- your favorite part of your job? That's a nice question. Um, I think my favorite part of my job is the people that I work with. I really, really love everyone on the double blind team, like so much genuinely, um, which is part of the reason why I work so hard every single day, you know, as the person who is largely responsible for running this company, it's like, I feel like I have to take care of these people. And um, it's really hard to run a company. And it's even harder to run a company when you're trying to do it with, you know, with a conscience. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a, it's definitely difficult. It makes it 10 times harder. (laughs) Um, And then tell me your favorite or your most impactful psychedelic experience, if you feel feel comfortable talking about it. Sure. Um, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is the first time that I did ayahuasca. Mm. And I mean, ayahuasca really raised raised the bar. I mean, it was, I'd been tripping probably a couple times a year since I was 18. Um, and then when I was 25, I had my first ayahuasca experience. I'm 30 now. And like, you really just, I mean, I don't know, maybe 5-MeO-DMT or maybe DMT, or maybe just doing a really, really high dose of psilocybin could, you know, could blow you out of the water to the same extent. But, um, I just felt at that point, like, um, I just felt at that point, like after that experience that I hadn't even ever tripped before, I was like, I never even, you know, it was so intense and so dimensional and so took me out of my body into other realms that when I came back from it, I was like, Ooh, <laughs> like there was no, I mean, I could tell you like very, very, you know, I have vague memories of moments that happened to me, visions that I had, which, you know, some people think it's kind of sacrilegious to even share the visions that you have on ayahuasca that you should kind of keep them to yourself, um, which I think is interesting. Um, but, uh, but I really don't even remember like what happened. Mm. I, I just, it was so intense. Like I drank some ayahuasca in the ceremony. We were in Joshua tree in this um, year out in the desert. And, um, I drank the ayahuasca and then I went back and sat down in the circle and, you know, it's always a little bit uncomfortable and nerve wracking when you're waiting for the psychedelic to kick in. Cause you're like, Ooh, what's going to happen? <laughs> and, um, and my best friend had been the one who referred me to the ceremony, my childhood best friend. And, 
she had kind of been like, I could tell she was excited. She's like, I can't wait to find out what you think of this experience. <laughs> and, uh, and so I'm sitting in the ceremony and, um, all of a sudden the guy next to me starts to like rock and like make noises. And I'm like, Oh God, like people are starting to feel it. And I'm not feeling anything. I'm just like mm-hmm. super scared. And I'm just looking around like, and then all of a sudden this girl pukes across the way and I'm like, everyone's <laughs> feeling it. It's happening. And then all of a sudden I started to like, I started to just get really overwhelmed by the energy in the space because people were feeling and so many things and making so many noises. And I was like, I got to get out of here. Like it was hot. I was like, I got to get out of here. So I like stand up and I step out of this, the yurt. I don't even remember what happened after that. I, mm. I fell over in the dirt outside of the yurt. <laughs> and, I woke up, and I woke up like I became conscious again, like six hours later. Like, oh I was, my gosh. I was, I was still like lying in the dirt. I asked the ceremony leaders, they're like, we, we came up to you and asked you if you wanted to come back into the ceremony space. And you were like, no, no, leave me here. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. When I became conscious again, like everything was so beautiful. So what, tell me like, what, what is the beauty? I feel like it's so hard for people to really explain it. That's why I'm like so excited to experience it myself. I'm actually, um, uh, I'll be going to Rhythmia to do a a ceremony, um, next year, but, um, what that beauty like what like what did it feel like what did it look like what was the experience of that afterwards i was just happy and Mm. empty and everything felt very light i should be honest that like things got really hard after that and i spent a couple months like in deep integration really feeling pretty miserable and confused Um, So I think it's important to say that to everyone. Eventually I came out the other side of it, but I would say that like, you know, and you can experience this as well on acid or shrooms or whatever they call it, the afterglow effect. But essentially like I feel, and even now in this moment, I've been thinking recently like time to go back for some medicine because I've been feeling so weighed down, Mm. you know, by just the day-to-day shit. Like I'm just, think my mind is on overdrive. I'm kind of like out of my body a little bit. Um, I feel heavy. And like after a really good psychedelic experience, it's just like the best cleanse of your life. It's like all the things that are weighing you down, your thoughts, all the emotions that are swirling around in your body. Like I remember I had had this guilt living in my stomach since I was a kid. I'm Jewish and you know, the Jews are famous for making their kids feel just guilty about everything. So I spent my whole childhood just feeling guilty. I had irritable bowel syndrome because of it. I mean, it was like guilt, guilt, guilt about everything. Um, You're too skinny, you're too fat, you're too this, you're too that, you know, all the shoulds. And that just wasn't there anymore. Mm. I was just a vessel. None of it was there. I was just empty. I love that. I can, I can't even imagine. I, one of the big reasons why I was like, oh, I have to go and do this plant medicine is because I feel in my body, the ancestral trauma piece of it. And I'm like, I don't even know. And I'm a yoga teacher and I meditate daily for the most part. 
and all these things. And I'm like, I cannot get this out of me, you know? And so there was like, and I'm also a little bit of an extremist where it's like, I can't do anything halfway and I can't do anything simple. I'm like, oh, you know, well, I gotta get up, I gotta go do, go to Costa Rica and do some plant medicine and like just throw myself into it. Um, but I love that description of like just feeling empty and feeling like a vessel because there's so much that like we take on and we accumulate, you know, and, and having that deep kind of spiritual cleanse, I can only imagine the freedom in that. Mm. Mm. Yeah. But do you feel comfortable talking about the um, integration period? Because I feel like that's not, I don't hear a lot about integration and like how, because I've thought about how doing psychedelics could just really fuck with your grounding. And I've struggled with, you know, how will that feel for me? How will it land in my body? But I'm interested to know your your experiences with that. Yeah, totally. Um, and for folks who want to learn more, um, not sh- I, f- I feel like weird and salesy about this, but no, like our course uh, called Using Psychedelics for Growth actually like really gets deep into how do you properly integrate and it has journal prompts and it's, it's, you know, there's, there's a lot to say about integration, but generally speaking for folks who don't know, I'll just define integration as the period of time following a psychedelic experience where you aim to take the lessons gleaned during your trip and actually process them fully and incorporate them into your life. So you might have a realization that, you know, oh, I need to break up with my partner or, you know, my work is making me sick or whatever crazy realization you have. But if you don't actually start taking the steps towards transforming your life, then that realization, I mean, you just go back, you can slip back into your old ways. And so it's very complicated and wily and tricky. And um, I'll just say that you know, and a lot of people say that integration is for a lifetime, right? It never mm-hmm. ends and the journey never ends. Um, and it's important to know that too, that, you know, one trip is not going to change or save your life. And anyone who tells you that is just full of crap. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's just a stepping stone and it's just a tool like all of our other tools, whether yoga or meditation or anything else. Um, but I mean, in terms of practical steps that you can actually take common things people recommend are absolutely make sure that you have a support system in place for after you get back from a plant medicine experience. So of course that's friends and family, hopefully, you know, whoever's listening to this has friends and family who they feel comfortable coming out to about their psychedelic use. Not everyone unfortunately is able to do that. Um, But additionally, having some kind of professional support system in place. Um, So there's lots of virtual integration circles. Um, We absolutely love these two integration therapists named Deanna Rogers and Ido Cohen, who we work with at Double Blind and who provide integration support to our students in our psychedelics course. But they also have a group called Integration Circle. That's literally what it's called on Facebook. And they do very affordable virtual integration circles regularly. And then also, um, 
you know, if you feel you need more one-on-one -on -one support or you might need more one-on-one -on -one support, we definitely recommend trying to find an integration therapist, mm -hmm. a therapist who is actually trained in helping people process their psychedelic experiences. Um, you know, again, we include a list of integration therapists who we love and trust in the course, but also MAPS has a big database on their website of integration therapists. Of course, the problem with integration therapy, which is a greater problem with therapy, which is again, an even bigger problem gets into like our healthcare system in general and insurance and disparities and whatever, is that mostly it's out of pocket and it's not super affordable. So, mm. you know, it's probably gonna be around like at least $125 for a session out of pocket. Um, that being said, you know, the integration really is even more important, some say, than the journey itself. And so you don't necessarily have to, you know, sign up to have one session a week for three months. I mean, even just to connect with someone for one or two sessions before you go to help get you, get you really clear on your intentions and give you some tips for how to navigate the experience. And then to have that, to already know you have that person kind of there for you on speed dial or whatever, should you get back and really be struggling, can be a huge sense of comfort. Yeah, that's great. That's a really uh, good idea. I never thought about going beforehand. That's a, a great thing. Awesome. Well, before we begin to wrap up here, can you tell everyone like where to find you and how to support Double Blind in your work and all of that? Yeah, for sure. So you can find us at doubleblindmag.com. Um, we publish a study stream of articles on all things related to plant medicines from how to use psychedelics safely to the latest news in pol psychedelic policy, drug development, etc. As mentioned before, we also have two online courses. One of them is on how to use psychedelics and it really covers everything from how to choose the right psychedelic for you to how to integrate your psychedelic experience. And then we have a second course on how to grow mushrooms if you're interested in that. It's super popular. We have more than 900 growers actually around the world right now growing mushrooms with us virtually. It includes live support from mycologists. So that's really fun and cool. And if you want to follow us on social media, we're just at Double Blind Mag on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Awesome. Awesome. And then my last question is what's lighting you up these days? Hmm. Swimming. Ooh. I love that. Yeah, swimming is great. It's just so immersive. I feel like my hamster wheel mind has to stop when I'm swimming. I love that. That's so good. So, so good. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been awesome. Yeah, it's been great. It's been great. I'd love to stay in touch. Thank you for, for having us. And um, we'll, we'll talk to you again soon. Absolutely. Thank you. So what did you think, my friends? I love, love, love talking about psychedelics and having conversations about the industry because it's so fascinating to me. It has so many different moving parts. And I love to be able to share these incredible medicines and this incredible new industry so that we can have a hand in shaping something so that it is brought forth with equity. Um, happy Thursday or whatever day you're listening to this. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week and I will talk to you next week. Much love to you. Bye.